Hey guys, just a quick note before we begin that the show may contain spoilers and adult language, but that's just because we know how to have a good time. Stick around, you'll be glad you did. You are here for me to enlighten you. Whoever act like this again, you're barred for life. It's just violent base. It's kind of embarrassing. If you know you're lying, then you can forget them. Oh, I get it. It's very clever. <laughs> Hello, peoples, and welcome to another episode of Esoterica Cinema, the podcast where we take films from the cinematic multiverse and discuss the hell out of them. I am your host for the day, Ryan Siebold, and with me, as always, is a man who recently started a boy band for middle-aged men, Mr. Jason Peters. What is up, Ryan, my friend? Oh, man, bringing the heat. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. How's it going? My my uh my hair just I I got bleached tips <laughs> I know, now. I know, I know. It's pretty fantastic and pretty amazing. The way that I where can... these puka shells come from? All of a sudden, I'm just instantly wearing puka shells. <laughs> baby, the effect baby, of your sultry baby, voice, baby, just... baby, 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 oh. baby. That's the you know that's the key to unlock any good boy band. It's just yeah. repeating the same like one thing over and over again. It's great. Yeah, we were talking to our manager, and basically we went back and we had uh, advanced AI Chat GPT was looking and analyzing the songs, the hit songs that is from the '90s and early 2000s, and found that 92.7 percent of all songs featured the word "baby" at least three times or more. And so wow. what we decided is it's like, look, dude, let's double down on this, right? Let's just let's just go 17 times baby in a row. Really make sure that we capture that. We we wanted to do kind of like the advertising thing where they say make sure that you mention the company name seven times in a commercial in a 30 yeah. second spot. We took that and we amplified it by 2.15 times. Boom. I mean, TLC literally had a song called Baby, Baby, Baby. So I get it. Yeah. Uh, let's talk a little bit about this, though. What Do, do you have any uh, potential names for your boy band? Um, some of the leading. So it's we're kind of doing a democratic process. OK. Some of the leading names that we have with are uh, the. Gra- <laughs> yeah. So the first one is actually uh, the gray short and curlies. And okay. this is, you know, we would think that. If we were to go with this name, we might lean into somewhat of a bebop kind of aesthetic. I was going to say that, yeah, that has kind of like a 60s flair right? almost. Like yeah, a- four tops kind of thing, right? A little yeah, bit of that kind of vibe yeah. to it. So, yeah. Now, if we were considering going with something that was perhaps uh, maybe a little bit more, I don't really know what the right word is to describe that 90s and 2000s sound, but you know, like the NSYNC Backstreet Boys, like, bounce, sure, bounce, yeah. bounce. Um, yeah, so we were thinking uh, at that point we would perhaps go with the creaky hips. That was a yeah, the creaky hips. Yes, <laughs> fantastic. Yes, well, best of luck to you. I don't know if any of that is marketable, but I guess I will tell, sir. In the meantime, we do have a movie to discuss, Jason. Uh, as my guest uh, host for the day, I'm going to go ahead and let you take the lead. What are we talking about? I appreciate it, Ryan. We are going to take a little trot down the happy-go-lucky trail that is known as Amores Pedos. Strap in, <laughs> folks. It's a jaunt of a Happy-go-lucky is a uh, boy band, might, you might say, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Google has this as follows. Inventively structured as a triptych, that's right, a triptych, look it up, it makes sense, of overlapping and intersecting <laughs> narratives, Amores Pedos explores the lives of disparate characters who are catapulted into unforeseen dramatic situations 
situations instigated by the seemingly inconsequential destiny of a dog named Coffee. Coffee, we love you. Shout out to Coffee. Shout out to Coffee. Yeah, we're going to talk a lot about Coffee in the next uh, hour or two. So, you know, Ryan, uh, being uh, on the, well, I suppose I can't really say being on the other side anymore. It's been long enough, but, you know. Being on the other side, I'll double down on it anyways because I don't have anything else to go with. I will ask you, what did you think about this movie? Jason, normally this would be the part where I say I would love to let you know right after this trailer. But yet again, we're covering a foreign film with a trailer full of foreign language that we don't speak and doesn't really play well (laughs) uh, over an audio-based format. So I'm just going to go ahead and uh, say I love this movie and we'll go ahead and get right into it. I'll Uh, pass it right back to you to, to start our film discussion for the day. Fantastic. Uh, Let's go ahead and rotate this stage 180 degrees. (laughs) All right. I am back in the host spot, man. We really got, can we get some oil or something for this? This, I mean, that's, that's really bad there. Did some heavy lifting. (laughs) So yeah, Ryan, I adore this movie. My goodness. This is such an amazing film. It's an exhausting film. It's an intense film. It is a film that asks a lot of you emotionally, but it is a film that gives you back two and a half times whatever it's going to ask of you. There is almost overload with regard to sensory and information and story and camera work and acting. There's just this movie is like so much, right? It's a lot of movie in two and a half hours completely justifies its screen time. Yeah. And on that same note, like going to those lengths to pack so much into uh, a two and a half hour movie. Uh, it is a two and a half hour movie, two hours and 37 minutes or something like that, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. But, the, you know, we need to start right out the top by saying this is Alejandro Gonzalez and Aritu's very first movie yes, uh, feature film. Now, he comes from a commercial background. He did a lot of commercial work back in the day. But uh, to come out swinging uh, with your first feature film filmed in Mexico City, coming off a budget of two point four million and then coming uh, in at a box office around twenty million. This isn't insanely ambitious um, and, yeah. and to shoot on film and everything that he was doing. We're going to get into all of it. Uh, but yeah, big, big stuff here. I love this movie as well. We're both going to be gushing about this for the next hour or two. But, um, uh, you know, uh, Alejandro Gonzalez in if that name sounds familiar for those of us that listen casually, this is the guy that gave us the Revenant uh, not long ago with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. So, um, yeah, this guy is. Oscar material. He's gone on to do big, big things. He's also a part of what they call the Three Amigos of Mexico with Guillermo del Toro and uh, Alfonso Cuaron, who I also love. Uh, Not so big on del Toro, but I love Cuaron. So we'll get into all that. Uh, I'll go ahead and pass it back to you and let you know uh, exactly where to start today, which is, as always... At the beginning. Yes, sir. At the beginning. By the way, I have to admit that I love that for a Mexican filmmaker, you put a French spin on his name and call him Quaron. Quaron. His name is Alfonso Quaron. <laughs> <laughs> Just nailing dialects. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm nothing if not a good voice talent. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Give me those accents. Ah, fantastic. Well, yes, let's go ahead and start as we do at the beginning. And when this film starts, we 
comes shooting right out of the gate. A kinetic scene where we open on a passing road. We hear these young men yelling as the car is racing through traffic. There's a lot of very frenetic handheld camera work. We see that a dog is badly bleeding in the back of the car as it's being chased by a truck. The driver and his friend, companion, whomsoever in the passenger seat are being shot at. And after, you know, a couple minutes of following them along, we get to an intersection, busy city, light turns red, our driver decides to gun it to try to lose the people behind him, ends up crashing into a roughly champagne-colored sedan. This is going to be the centerpiece in terms of the action that brings all of our characters together. And we are very quickly going to see that this is a multi-layered narrative that's kind of been put in a sort of shake-and-bake, perhaps not to the degree that he he being in Yuritu would do with his next film, 21 Grams. However, there is a lot of crossover with regards to narratives being told simultaneously while also still being somewhat chapterized. Now, after this crash, we cut to a title card that says Octavio e Susana, and those are going to be our two main characters of the first of the three stories. And we open in an underground dogfight arena. There's a lot of shady characters bloody dogs. We see a guy with a gold tooth who's fighting a dog. We also see the friend from the opening scene. And then immediately after that, we're going to cut to a schoolgirl. She's going to get home. Her name is Susanna. We see that her house is impoverished. She has a kid. The driver from the opening scene arrives at the house soon. His name is Octavio. And we learn that he is the brother of this woman, Susanna's husband, and his brother's name is Ramiro. He's very violent you know, and as a matter of fact, when he's talking down to her, Octavio tries to like jump in and defend her. Now, if yeah, you hear me, family. yeah. Now, if you hear me jumping around a lot, uh, for anybody that's listening that maybe hasn't seen this film, it might be a little bit difficult to follow along. Just want to throw this out here real quick because, again, this is a multi-layered narrative where we're getting three completely separate stories that are often being set up in ways at the same time. Again, sure. while still being somewhat chapterized. So there's going to be a lot of jumping around over the course of this narration. It may not be as easy to follow if you haven't seen the film as perhaps some of our past episodes. But again, that does reflect the experience. So let me just finish getting through here and then I'll tee up with this, Ryan. So we see that the guy with the gold tooth, Jiraco, uh, his dog is you know very successful. He wins this fight. And afterwards, he goes to sick him on Octavio's dog, Coffee. And that she he was let out by Susanna earlier in the scene, sets that up. And instead of killing Coffee, Coffee kills Jericho's dog. And, of course, you know, he wants payback because that's lost money. And then immediately from there, we're going to cut to this old man. His name is El Chivo. He's hinted at earlier with some dogs. And he is outside of a fancy restaurant, pulls out a gun, and kills a businessman. Now... Well, okay, so let's – and then just one last thing real quick too is that immediately after that, we see a man driving home with his wife. He looks up. He sees the supermodel on this billboard, gets home. There's someone calling and you know there's no answer and they hang up. So right there within a span of a few minutes, Ryan, we don't even know it the first time that we've seen it. But this is the director setting up the fact that all of these stories are sort of going to coincide and crash into one another, Right. So let me ask you, within the first, you know, 10, 15 minutes, obviously the film is it's saying a lot. It's doing a lot. It's setting up the overall structure where we're seeing these scenes from different perspectives, multiple protagonists, the, you know, very 
kinetic tone, violent tone, breakneck pacing, all of this sort of stuff. Did that, how, how did you respond to that? You know, because I, I, I know there are some people where it's like, it's a little much, it's a little too intense, but what did you think about just being thrown into this world as dramatically as you were? Yeah, and rarely does he take his foot off the gas. Again, no pun intended. We're just going to keep coming up with car crash puns for this whole thing. But uh, yeah, the take story a drink every in- time we make a car pun. By the way, see how hammered you get. <laughs> unless you're driving, yeah. unless you're driving, then don't, don't do that. Yeah, unless you're trying to reenact this movie, in which case, you know, <laughs> if you're committed to the bit, um, yeah, I, I just it absolutely worked for me. I love this movie. The pacing is fantastic. It's done through the cinematography. It's done through the score and the music choices. It's done through the acting and, and you know, the, the script and all of it. it. It all is just working harmoniously. Again, the fact that this is uh, Inaritu's first film is insane. But, um, he you know, he was saying that in Mexico back then, Ford Cinema back in uh, 2000 when this was made, um, 99 Let's take probably, a trip. Yeah, right. Was it? <laughs> was it you know i mean we're we're back in the land of uh the first boy bands right so <laughs> but um yeah i just i feel like this is just so ambitious to do something like this as your first movie out but Seriously. he was quoted as saying that in mexico back then uh you really only got one movie to prove yourself yeah uh, and that's kind of true across the board i don't think that's necessarily a mexican thing but he said especially by mexican standards it was so hard to get a movie out across the border of Mexico back then and into the mainstream market of westernized cinema that or into film festivals and stuff like that. You know, they have, they would have all these little subcategories for like best Latin film or this and that. But when you go to best picture, um, you know, whether it's Con Film Festival or Sundance or any of these things, uh, you know, it was kind of limited in scope of what was available to what how you could submit. So sure. uh, he said, if you're going to make a movie of this caliber, you better get it all out there because you might only get one shot. And that's why it really drew him to be so ambitious. But yeah, yeah, I, I will say that right up front, first and foremost, um, trigger warning uh, for anybody watching this that is sensitive to pet violence or dog violence or anything like that. Um, it, it does show some pretty graphic scenes as Jason was describing. Um, I, he, you know, he kind of breezed past it a little bit, but, uh, visually when you're watching the movie, it, it grabs you and kind of shows you how serious this shit is. And, and if you're sensitive to that, just be aware that there is a considerable amount of that throughout the movie, but yeah. no animals were hurt, uh, in the making of this film. Um, they, you know, took every, uh, step they could and used multiple dogs and all of that to make sure that no dogs were overworked and all of that because dog fighting and the dog coffee specifically is kind of a center point to bring a lot of these characters together. So uh, just be advised of that as we move forward as well for any of our listeners, if you're going to go back and watch this movie. Yeah. And that's fair. There was actually a number of people that walked out of the, and I'm sorry, Ryan, you mentioned a film festival, but I don't believe I've ever heard of that one before. You called it the cons film festival. I don't know. What I know. That is. I know. It's the cans. <laughs> cans <laughs> For yes. anybody listening that has it, we brought this up a few episodes back where like both of us learned that it was pronounced Cannes Film Festival and not Cannes Film Festival and kind of had our minds blown a little bit because like we've been saying Cannes for a very long time. So I think it's accepted by now. I think it's an accepted uh, mistake. Um, so many people call it Cannes, but yeah, you're yeah. right. Cannes. Uh, <laughs> you know, I was more surprised by Star Trek II, The Wrath of Cannes. I ah. thought that that was, <laughs> I thought I had that one nailed. <laughs> actually i think i think that's steve martin in the jerk but you know why does he hate these cans 
<laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah, I think the film is a really interesting experiment in perspectivism, you know, the way that Inuritu was able to take a single action and observe it from multiple different points of view and see how this incident affects different people's lives. I think it's really right. masterfully done. It reminds me of those installations. I believe you've probably seen them before, at least like in Instagram or something like that. But you know those art installations where like it looks like a bunch of garbage and then you like walk around to this very specific point. <laughs> right. And then all of a sudden yes. it's like a portrait of Martin Luther King. And you're like, it all comes goodness, together. that's amazing. Th- this is yep. very much what that is like, right? Like from here – you know, from from Octavio's point of view, this looks like this. And then from here, from Valeria's, it looks like this. And then from here, from right. Chivo's, it looks like this. And even down to the standpoint that if I have my information correctly, the, the car crash is, so, is sort of like a be, the beginning and middle and end for each of them respectively, right? It kind of ends Octavio's sure. story. It kind of begins Valeria's story. And it's somewhere around the middle of El Chivo's. So yes. really interesting the way that the film looks at that. Do you have a, a little sort of interesting uh, anecdote real quick about the dogfighting arena that they okay that they shot in? So don't know if you, you read about this, but so they went to go scout locations. They, they, they found this dogfight arena. They heard about it. They went there. They were going to shoot there. Turned out it was actually being run by a gang at the time actively. And so oh, shit. the entire crew, in, including Inuritu, ended up getting jumped and had all of their uh, gear stolen, in, including oh, wow. the camera. And in spite of all of this, Inuritu was like, but I just love that location. It's so perfect for what we're going for. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think we can work something out with the gang. Let's go talk to them. So they went back and they talked to them and basically got strong-armed and were like, hey, what do you guys want? Let's make this happen. And so Inuritu and the gang ended up paying off the crew, uh, the gang rather, to let them shoot there. And then the gang also demanded uh, that they be included in scenes. And so during the dogfights, all of the people surrounding, all of the spectators that are watching are actual gang members. And that was part of how they got to use that location. Oh, wow. <laughs> but man, dude, he's a, you know, it, that's the thing, dude. It's like when you're a, when you're a filmmaker, like your calculus is different. You will, you will absolutely go back and strike up a deal with gangs to get a location that is just 100% what you need and what you want. You know, it, it's, it, you're, you're on, you're on a different level, man. Yeah, and going back to what you were saying briefly before about the uh, the triptych scenario and how they're layering this and approaching it from different angles, uh, Inuritu was quoted as saying that uh, he was compared a lot at the time uh, with Scorsese because culturally speaking, that's how uh, we would know of like a, an indie film of this budgetary size or whatever, mm-hmm. kind of approaching a story from different angles. It's like a Reservoir Dogs or a Pulp Fiction. Um, that was kind of what was laid out there, but... Uh, he said that this was less uh, genre based and and he wanted to make the violence less fun. He was more uh, interested in showing consequences of violence instead of using it as like, you know, a, a fun thing or a re- rewarding thing. Sure. Um, or, or something that we're along for the ride for. He said, he you know, the violence is really just a vehicle to get no pun intended. Hey, drink, everybody. A vehicle to get <laughs> you to the consequences of, uh, of the story and, and to show these uh, people's story arc carried through. So, uh, yeah, it is kind of that Reservoir Dogsy vibe, though, a little bit, or Pulp Fiction-y vibe, and so much as, like, everybody's story kind of 
layers a little bit and you could see uh, whereas like in Pulp Fiction, for example, you have the diner scene, which all of a sudden, you know, you get later on and you see Travolta and Samuel L. Jackson are there, you know, they're doing a thing. So uh, gotcha. yeah, everybody kind of overlaps sorry. a little bit. Just to be clear earlier, you said you said Scorsese, but I think you meant Tarantino, right? Yes, absolutely. Did I say Scorsese? You, you did say Scorsese, yeah. Which honestly is, yep. isn't an unfair comparison. I think tonally he's very I, much Scorsese. Abso- tonally it's Scorsese, but narratively speaking, Correct. the, the yeah. structure of the story is Tarantino. That's yeah. what I meant. Yes, sorry and, that, that. and that's very much a surface level observation that like mainstream people would make, right? Like, oh, well, you know, he juggled narratives and he juggled narratives. So they're basically the same filmmaker. And it's like, have you watched these films like there is nary a chuckle to be found in the entire two and a half hours of amores peros man like you know it's they're again they're stylistically very different they're tonally very different emotionally philosophically very different films but structurally yes they do juggle stories that that's all i mean yes yeah right so and to your point from earlier, Ryan, yeah, just needing to jam pack this film because he didn't know if he'd get to make another one. In 1998, just a couple years before this film was released, Mexico released eight films all year. Wow. That is how dire the industry was in Mexico. And part of this, too, as we've seen with so many other territories, historically speaking, a lot of this also had to do with a regime change politically, where I suppose for. 70 years or so, there was a sort of communist government that was in charge and, you know, prevented the arts from being funded and all of this sort of stuff. And it wasn't until 2000 that I believe Vicente Fox was like the first democratically elected leader Mexico had in 70 years. And so it was also part of that sort of transformation to opening up the country as a whole, economically, artistically, and otherwise, cut to 20 years later, in 2018, Mexico released 115 feature films. So that's how far they've come in 20 years, which is crazy. Damn, good for them. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So, And this film also was the second highest grossing film uh, in Mexico at the time that it was released. Worth mentioning is we're going back into the old time machine here. Um, You know, Inaritu was 37 years old when he made this. So as much as we're saying that he... You know, this is his first film and he's striking out and he's super ambitious. Uh, This is no like 25 year old kid fresh out of AFI or something like that, um, as like David Lynch was in The Elephant Man. You know, he's he's had a career in commercials and stuff, and he had done quite a bit throughout his life uh, and decided he would dip his toe into the old feature film situation and see where this took him. So, uh, yeah, he was he was 37 when he made this, which kind of gives a little context to the kind of director or the kind of story he wanted to tell. Absolutely. And he strikes me as one of these take life by the balls kind of guy, because to your point, before he made this film, not only did he have a production company, it's actually a commercial production company. So he did a lot of commercials Mm -hmm. and was very sort of artistically ambitious to the point that apparently he didn't even discuss his ideas and approach with clients. It was just like, hire me, tell me what you want, and then I will bring you back something a month later and you'll take it. Oh, wow. Yeah, he was super ballsy like that. And part of it, too, is that, I don't know if you saw this, that he actually carved out a name for himself in Mexico as an FM radio DJ. I did see that, yes. Yeah, so he was like the voice of Mexico in Mexico City and a lot of the larger cities for many years. And to from what I understand, from what I can make of it, it kind of seems like he brought a little bit of that like Western FM energy to okay. an industry that didn't traditionally have that, where he's kind of playing his own music that's not dictated by a playlist. And he's 
you know, conversing with his co-hosts. They're trying to, you know, have a little fun in between songs. He used to write little narratives and sketches and would do comedic promos and things of that nature. So really just tried to loosen up what until then had been a very formal industry. And so, yeah, by the time he, again, became a filmmaker and he would go on to actually become the first Mexican filmmaker to win Best Director at the Oscars and he would do so twice in a row with Birdman and The Revenant. He was, again, a celebrated commercial producer and filmmaker as well as a celebrated FM radio DJ. So this guy's just – he's just awesome. He's just been a creative his entire life and he's a doer. I dig him. He's a great – he seems like a great guy. Yeah, yeah. There are some of his movies I haven't seen yet too and this kind of inspired me to go back. Like I have not seen Beautiful. I have not seen Babel. Same. Of all things. Same. So Absolutely, there, yeah. There's a couple in there that have – there are still little nuggets for me to go back and revisit. Maybe that will be – Good fodder for the old mini reviews. We'll see how it goes. Absolutely. Now, when we get back to the movie, we learn Susanna is pregnant again and Ramiro's going to be pissed. And Octavio actually wants to run away with her. He's actually very much in love with her. He tries to kiss her while at the same time we see Ramiro holding up an electronics store. It's going to set up something at the end. We see the old man at a, and he's in his house. And we see that he notices a funeral notice for a woman and starts hyperventilating. Obviously, they have some sort of relationship. At that point, Octavio goes into business with Coffee, the dog, starts dog fighting, fights and kills Jericho's new dog. And now he's got some money. He's able to buy some groceries and diapers for Susanna and the baby, even though Ramiro is kind of pissed about it. He actually ends up getting headbutted in the middle of the store. And from there, we see the old man at the funeral. He's approached by his sister-in-law, promptly gets scolded. And he's watching this younger woman. I think pretty immediately all of us assume that she's his daughter, which, of course, she's going to go on to be. And after that, we get a montage. Ramiro's robbing. Octavia's winning dogfights. Ramiro finds out, threatens to kill Coffee if he doesn't get a cut of the winnings. And this is when we see Octavia and Susanna kind of take it to the next level, but not the ultimate level, start making out a little bit. And then Octavio's approached by Gordo, who's the dogfight guy. And he says that Jericho wants to set up one final match for $40,000. Susanna's like, no, we got plenty of money. We don't need to do that. But of course, our protagonist, Octavio, can't help himself. Wants that one last job. One last job before we call the it The one quits, last score. Right? Yeah. The infamous one last score. Exactly. That's always, always, always ends up taking them down, right? So is this going to be any different? No, it is not. Well, and then around the same time, too, as we're seeing Ramiro doing in the montage, we see him doing a, a series of holdups or robberies, uh, which is where he's getting, the, even though we, uh, we see him running a, a register at a, like a grocery store uh, or convenience store, um, you know, he's making a lot of his money doing legal crimes on yes. the side. Ramiro, this is Octavio's brother. And he is also talking about the one last score. He wants to rob a bank. And then yes. once he gets his bank, he's out. And this is going to be it. So we have these two brothers, a Cain and Abel type situation that are at odds over this woman. Um, and uh, they're both working their way down their narrative uh, storyline to, you know, their ultimate end of one last score to just get out. This is all I want. And then I'm going to get out. And oddly enough, they both want to run away with Susanna. So, uh, yeah. Absolutely. And this is kind of where, you know, the cultural influences come into play because Inuritu was very sort of upfront about the fact that like, yeah, this film does have some what we would call genre trappings, right? 
Uh, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe trappings isn't fair, but we're going to lean into certain genre material. And part of that is like the telenovela stuff, right, of this relationship because these these types of illicit relationships and will they, won't they type of things are common in the telenovela. So he wanted to, again, provide that to sort of a mainstream audience because he did want this to be a film made for mainstream audiences while also elevating it to something approaching art, which I believe it does in spades and then some. And so we do get a lot of those sort of like what you might call low genre type of instances and actions and characterizations that sort of infiltrate the script and the finished product as well. Just not the uh, slow push-ins uh, on the reaction faces <laughs> for like 20 seconds apiece, slow push-in on Octavio, slow push-in on Ramiro. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, Octavio plans to run away with Susanna in just a couple of days right after this score. And he has Gordo also beat up his brother Ramiro as he finally makes love to his brother's wife. Complicated relationship these two have. Now, there's a quick scene of Susanna's mom. She's hammered. She's neglecting the baby. Kind of heartbreaking. And we see why she hasn't been able to help out. Octavio comes home to find that Susanna and the baby are gone. He learns this from his mom. And Ramiro has gone with them as well. And as he goes and runs – so I don't even know if we mentioned this, but this entire time – Octavio has been giving his winnings to Susanna to keep in a box so that the him, the baby, and Susanna can all run away together and live off of this money. And so he goes to see if the box is empty, and sure enough, it is. Promptly loses his shit, feels very stabbed in the back. And at that point, too, we also get a nice little setup of the crossover with regards to the supermodel Valeria, who's going to be uh, one of the protagonists of the next sequence. She's on a talk show in the background. Film does a lot of little touches like that that are very nice. And then after the big dog fight with Jericho, Jericho ends up shooting coffee, the dog, and Octavio retaliates by grabbing a knife, stabbing him in the gut, and then running out to the car and promptly trying to get away. This brings us back to our opening scene with all of that craziness. It replays it, but with a little bit of a slightly different sound design that I thought was a really nice touch. And as a matter of fact, sure. when the the car crash appears four times in the film, each okay. from, well, once from the same point of view, but slightly different with this scene contrasted to the opening scene where it's kind of the same, but with that slightly different sound design. And then the following sound designs as well around the other characters are completely unique. So when Valeria gets into the car crash. She's listening to that like poppy Spanish music, right? Uh, everything's supposed to be nice and happy because she get the, she just got this new apartment. And then when it's El Chivo, we get some of that guitar score that factors into the second half of the movie very strongly. And so again, even the sound design and the way the car crashes and what you hear surrounding everything is relative to each character, which I thought was very well done. Sure. Now, Ryan, a huge part of this film's overall aesthetic is the look and feel of the camera work. And hey, there it is. I was waiting for that to come up. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, again, again, in a, in a very distinctive film, this is one of those aspects that serves that distinction and really makes itself stand out. So what did you think about the camera work? Did you find out anything about the production, cameraman, anything about the overall look and feel of the cinematography that you'd like to discuss? Yeah, man, this is Rodrigo Prieto in his prime, baby. We love this guy. (laughs) And this is also the second film in a row that was uh, balls deep in good old bleach bypass in the early 2000s. I knew knew you were going to pick up on that too, man. I thought that was hysterical. Yeah, yeah. So uh, right out the gate, you're looking at Mexico in a way that you rarely see it, which is green and blue and desaturated with blown out highlights. 
you know, normally the 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 whole stereotype of anything in Latin America or Central America <laughs> is going to that sepia tone, orange with big filter, old oranges, and yeah, it's all warm and hot. So uh, yeah, this is a lot of greens and a lot of blues. It's very um, you know, ill-toned and, and makes you feel kind of upset the whole time. It's uh, fluorescent lighting and, you know, just kind of some gross stuff. And it, it, it's off-putting, uh, to say the least. So a couple things about it, and then I'll toss it back to you to get, you know, your your take on it. And you can kind of add a little bit. I'm sure you did some research on this as well. But yeah, uh, Inaritu and Prieto, uh, the cinematographer, went back into their commercial days. They came up together as kids and he was his DP through all his commercial stuff. And so, of course, he was going to rely on his good old buddy, Rodrigo, to film his first feature. Yeah. He knew what uh, he was going to get from him. But um, he relied heavily on this bleach bypass. Uh, I guess he said Mexico City at the time was very polluted. And the mm-hmm. air had um, a really bad quality that on film, cinema-wise, cinema uh, on camera. It just um, wasn't giving him the contrast. It was almost like a hazer like uh, yeah. or, or like a fog machine or something. Like It was making everything soft and dreamy. And he wanted to cut through that. So uh, he said the bleach bypass process was uh, the tool that he used to be able to cut through a lot of that and get the contrast and detail and grain and dirt and grime that, uh, that he wanted to kind of make this film. So, um, yeah, that again, for those that didn't listen to our last episode, bleach bypass is a chemical, uh, process in post-production where bleach is used to get rid of the, uh, silver chemical on the film emulsion, uh, when you're developing the film. So when you bypass that pro- uh, process, uh, what you end up with is the silver being left on the emulsion, which gives you more or less a black and white image on top of a color image, which desaturates your image and uh, blows out your highlights. It ruins your film latitude, also increases your film grain and certain things like that. And it gives a very distinguished look. Uh, as we talked uh, a little bit last episode, you can go back and listen to that. But this was used to dramatic effect in movies like Saving Private Ryan. Uh, and of course, the last movie we watched, which is Old Boy. So uh, by uh, Chanuk Park. So anyway, uh, yeah, a lot of handheld. This movie is frenetic as hell. Um, yeah. <laughs> it can be a little dizzying, um, you know, uh, makes you a little car sick. Drink everybody uh, at times. <laughs> and yeah. Uh, and then a lot of tight and close up shots, which normally I would say would be a cheat code. Uh, I think I've even mentioned it on this show before a cheat code for first time filmmakers, because when you don't have to show the environment, now you don't have to like worry about what's in the background, right? You're just like close up tight shots and this and that. But uh, he said this actually was very intentional to create a very claustrophobic feel. Um, even when he's shooting wide, he's oftentimes framing characters within things uh, or shooting like in between a person's arm and his waist. And like, then you'll see Octavio kind of like framed in there, but he wanted all these characters to feel very trapped and claustrophobic uh, visually um, as well as narratively. So, A lot of handheld, a lot of claustrophobic tight shots. Um, It also allowed him to move very quickly, not changing lenses or focal lengths and stuff. Just shoot it very guerrilla style. It reminded me a lot of a, like the Scorsese version of um, El Mariachi, kind of in that same Mm, vein. Uh, Way back in season one, we discussed El Mariachi and it was uh, the same way that Rodriguez shot uh, also in Mexico where he was just in a hurry and had to get all this shit and he was packing 10 pounds of crap in a five pound bag. So, sure. uh, you know, keep the lens on the camera, slap it on. Let's go shoot it handheld. Let's just run to the next scene and go do the next thing. So uh, how about you, Jason? What do you feel about all this? Did I cover it or you got anything more to add? Yeah. Just to your point, what struck out the most to me was just the extensive use of handheld to the point that there's not a single shot in the entire movie that they put on sticks. Literally every single shot is wow. handheld. So even That's the crazy. wide shots and all of the 
interesting camera placement. You know, I thought they were really good about exploring sort of the dimension with regard to where they could put the camera. And, you know, we've got some high shots, low shots everywhere in between. They really looked at the space as three-dimensional. Yes. And thought about how they could capture a lot of the different images. And yeah, and for those that don't know, this guy Prieto, again, goes on to be a super stud. He's worked with Julie Taymor, Ang Lee, Martin Scorsese, Oliver Stone, and most recently he's actually shooting the Barbie movie for Greta Gerwig. Go figure. Oh, wow. I did not know that. That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah, he shot like Wolf of Wall Street and a bunch of stuff. That guy's a badass. Yeah, he's a super stud for sure. Now, as we get back to the film, we see that the supermodel Valeria, she's on a talk show. She announces a handsome boyfriend, Andres. Quickly, this is proven to be a fake. He takes her to apartment. She's unimpressed. She's not really sure what's going on. Turns out her lover is waiting for her there. It's the older man or middle-aged gentleman that we saw earlier that lives with Julieta. His name is Daniel. They're the ones that have been getting the what we thought might be prank phone calls before we figured out that there was this sort of illicit affair going on. But obviously didn't figure that it would be with this gorgeous supermodel, at least not the first time we see the film. Now she's ecstatic, Valeria, and she runs towards him, breaks a hole in the floor, which is going to set up our – main MacGuffin are we going to call it a MacGuffin later yeah whatever (laughs) it is you know it's going to set up the central conflict let's say and you know he also see he also shows her that there's a huge billboard of her right across the street that she can see from the window in their apartment it's this enchant campaign for like a perfume or something like that and she's super happy she's going to go out take her dog Richie to celebrate and ends up getting hit in the car by Octavio oopsie we cut to our title card Daniel and Valeria. Valeria is in the hospital. Her leg is in a heavy metal sprint. She's brought home in a wheelchair. And from there, we cut to El Chivo. He breaks into his daughter's house and steals a family picture, which is a weird way of showing affection, but it is going to come into play later. We also see Valeria. She's playing a ball with Richie, throwing the ball back and forth for him to go catch and bring back. I believe they call it fetch in some places. And he ends up (laughs) going into the hole after the ball uh, accidentally bounces into the hole. She's in a wheelchair. She can't get him out. She's scared. She tells Daniel, hey, we've got to get this dog out. And uh, to be honest, he's not taking it too seriously. He's like, nah, you know what? The dog's fine. He'll come out. Hey, you want some dinner? I think I can go make us some dinner. You know, fuck that dog. So now that obviously is going to come into account later, and it's not going to be that easy. But Ryan, one of the things that struck me at this point is I want to say that we're about, you know, uh, the first sequence maybe takes about 45 minutes. And that's actually the very first time that we hear score come into play. There's actually, without even realizing it, there has been no music in that entire first sequence with exception to the montage where they ended up playing what at the time was actually a very large hit. It's the Si Senor song. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Which I actually, it was so funny because when that song came on during that montage, it actually immediately reminded me that that was the song that they used on the original DVD menu because I remembered hearing that on loop, you know, like the movie would be over and you wouldn't turn off your, your DVD player. And at the time they were doing a lot of like (laughs) animation stuff and putting in music. And so it would just like, that would repeat the other film that I used to do that with was the knocked up DVD which has the savage song. Oh shit. Shake ass. Now move it like a gypsy. Like that would just play on repeat over and over in the background. 
And both yeah. pretty obnoxious songs to wake up to <laughs> at three in the morning after you've fallen asleep watching these. Although if you're falling asleep watching a Moritz Peros, like you probably should be in therapy right now. So yeah, <laughs> so maybe you'll fuck you up. It's worth mentioning real quick, just to interject, like, holy crap, man, to go from Beast of the Southern Wild to Elephant Man to Old Boy to Moritz Peros, like... This has been a heavy month <laughs> of watching movies and recording this show. Like we're trying Absolutely. to make light of it. We're all having our giggles here, but holy crap, these movies are very serious, very, very heavy subject matter in Amores Peros here. So yeah. Absolutely. But fucking bangers, man. I mean, these are good ass movies, Absolutely. man. So, you know. Yep. No, we're on fire right now. And now a quick word from our sponsor. Attention listeners, are you tired of constantly having to take the blame for making one bad decision after another? Oh, who could have guessed that crypto would wipe out two-thirds of my family's life savings? Oh, my wife's going to kill me. Then get ready for the latest invention to smack you upside the head. Rose-colored glasses. Rose-colored glasses. With rose-colored glasses... You no longer have to accept the world for how it is. Interesting. So how does it... How does it work, you ask? Simply slide the glasses over your eyes and then pretend as though you did absolutely nothing wrong. So it wasn't my fault I lost all our money. Not at all. Not when nefarious capitalists are working behind the scenes in a shadow conspiracy of the highest order. Yeah, that's totally it. Shadow conspiracies are everywhere. Now you're talking like a man wearing rose-colored glasses. I'm the man who does repairs myself, but always ends up breaking stuff. Is there a way I can feel less emasculated about my failure to conform to traditional gender-based social standards? There sure is. Just put on a pair of rose-colored glasses, and you'll realize that corporations have promoted profits over quality in an effort to promote the continued transfer of wealth from people to the ruling minority. Okay, but like... I'm pretty sure that's legit happening. Now you're getting it, satisfied customer. This has nothing to do with the glasses. That is absolutely going on. Rose-colored glasses. Rose-colored glasses is also proud to introduce our brand new signature model, the Presidential Series. Sir, the results of the election are in. You lost handily, fair and square. Democracy works once again. Not so fast there, Antifa. I think you forgot to put on your rose-colored glasses. Let's try that again. Sir, the results of the election are in. It turns out there's been immense fraud on a massive level, the likes of which this nation has never seen. You didn't actually lose, and the people all think you're a great leader. Plus, your hair looks great. Rose-colored glasses. Rose-colored glasses. Never again will you have to accept responsibility for your own actions. And now back to the show. Yeah, now the composer is a, is a gentleman. I, I hope I don't get this wrong. Gustavo Santaolalla? Santaolalla, I'm going to go with. Did you happen sure. to look up anything about this dude? I did not. Only that uh, I think he was one of the homies, right? That uh, came along with Inaritu from previous yeah, projects he, or he, no? Yeah, no, absolutely. And he's actually a character, man. Like he looks like if you watch him in interviews, he gives off energy that splits the difference between Guillermo del Toro and Steve Zahn. He's got these real wide, crazy eyes, right? And the funny thing is, so this is a guy who's been in a lot of different bands over the years, and he okay. came out from Mexico and basically just started like 
hawking his CDs to anybody who would listen. He'd just go to these random industry events and, you know, he's a dude, you know, showing up in shorts and a t-shirt to black tie events, like passing out DVDs, like, hey, I compose film. Hey, I compose music for film. You know, hire me, hire me, hire me. And he only ended up getting like one callback from like hundreds of things that he's that he he gave out. It was with Guillermo. And so the funny thing about this dude is that he actually is most famous for scoring Oh, video game parts one and two of The Last of Us. Yes. Yeah. And and the TV series, too. He's been doing the TV series as well. And if you think about it, it's like, of course, because it's it's the same style. It's very sparse. It's very guitar driven. It's sort of the way that it it examines melody and the space within. You you can totally tell after you hear it like, oh, yeah, of course, this is the same guy. And he really doesn't have a lot of credits to his name. He has like four of Inurito's films and then Last of Us 1 and 2. How did I not pick up on that? Gustavo Santaelaya. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Super nuts. Fucking crazy. Yeah. And he went on to go do like Brokeback Mountain, Babel and stuff like that. But yeah, Last of Us is what he's on right now uh, that I'm familiar with. And uh, that's Bononos. I can't believe I didn't realize that. Super funny thing about this guy, too, is that he's very unconventional. So first and foremost, he can neither write nor read music. And this is what? a guy that has won BAFTA awards and Academy Awards, and he cannot read or write music. He's a wow. gra- he's a Grammy award winning producer. It might be like Latin Grammys or something like that. But again, very very storied producer. Kind of reminds me of like a Mexican Rick Rubin a little bit in that regard. And yeah, very, and very much has a similar mindset where it's just about artistic expression and freeing up people to play and one of his go-to instruments. So he has two instruments primarily that he leaned on to create this score. The first is the, is a guitar, which is obviously very noticeable throughout the, especially the second half of the film. Once the score sort of does take place. And the other is he has a series of different gauge PVC piping and he's learned to sort of play them like trumpets and get different frequencies that he will record and then lay underneath his guitars. Oh, wow. Yeah. So this is just like a super like, dude, totally beats to the sound of his own drum, you know, or dances to the beat of his own drum, rather. And I think, you know, the film and and, and all of these projects that he's involved with are actually better for it. Like, it's really it's really impressive what he's doing. Very interesting. Now I know. Yeah, that's crazy. (laughs) Yeah, now when we get back to the film, the old man El Chivo has saved coffee from the car crash. He's nursing him back to health. We see that Valeria has lost her enchant contract. And as she's trying to find Richie, she also finds rats underneath the floorboards. We have sort of heard these rats before to a degree, but they've never been explicitly called out. She calls Daniel at work. She's afraid the rats are going to eat Richie if they haven't already. And this is where their relationship starts to take a turn for the worse. They begin yelling at each other very violently as though they've been married for many years. They're starting to receive some calls at the house that the caller is hanging up much the way that Valeria was doing to them back home. So we can pretty much assume that that's Julieta at work. And later we see that Valeria is in a lot of pain. She's angry. She's upset about everything that's going on. She hears Richie underneath, upset that Daniel refuses to get him. They yell and fight some more, fight very badly. And when Dan comes home from work, 
Valeria's locked herself in the bedroom, and rather than, you know, bust the door down, Daniel's going to sleep on it on the couch. Next morning, door is still locked. That's when he decides to break the door down, finds that Valeria, Valeria is unconscious, takes her to the hospital where we learn that advanced gangrene has set in overnight, and the doctors have had to amputate her leg. No more modeling Shitty. for Valeria, which is unfortunate. They go home. Dan goes home, at least, while she's in the hospital. This is where he finally breaks open all the floorboards in the main room, kind of get a little bit of a... Francis Ford Coppola conversation scene there a little bit and finally frees the dog. Valeria returns home the next day in a motorized wheelchair so that, with just one l- leg. Hold on real quick. Let me just interject because this is something I really wanted to sincerely ask you. That was the, the so the dog was still alive. They saved the dog, right? They did. I did. See that correctly? Yes. Yeah. So how much time do you think is passed that that dog was surviving under the floorboards of their house? I think it was like three days a or week? so. I don't think it was three to five days maybe. Okay, you think gangrene set in and the whole thing, like all of that progressed. I mean, it's a pretty truncated schedule for sure. I'm not going to say that it's not. They probably rushed through it a little bit, but I mean, you can't slow the film down that much, right? And all of a sudden go into like lengthy. I was just wondering like how long that dog's been chilling down there, but maybe he's been living off those rats. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Not really (laughs) sure. In all fairness, they were leaving like some food and shit, like throwing stuff down in there. Yeah, but it it was also like chocolates, which I understand is like very bad for dogs. So like, I don't know. It is. (laughs) yeah but yeah i mean this movie is nothing if not kind of dogs right (laughs) yeah you know what they're like we're gonna give you a little something to hang on to i'll tell you what we won't kill the dog how about that sure in light of all of this other tragedy we'll at least give you the dog doesn't die (laughs) richie lives yes and you know we see valeria return home she goes to the window where she draws the blinds and sees that her ad campaign is no longer featured on this giant building. The space is for rent, and we see some tears start to fall before we cut to our next sequence. Now, Ryan, again, one of the strengths in the film that has so many strengths is this amazing script, this screenplay from this dude, Guillermo Arriaga. And whether you want to talk about its unique structuring, the characterizations, the dialogue – I think this is just a superb screenplay that succeeds on so many levels and really is the strong foundation that sets up Inuritu to succeed in the many, many ways that he does. So did you kind of have a similar response to that screenplay or am I speaking in hyperbole? No, this was dope. Yeah, this is – I mean – we're going to get into this, but this is a perfect movie to me. Uh, you're not going to get too much criticisms on this side of this conversation <laughs> uh, from this guy about this movie. And he go, you know, he went on to go write 21 grams and Babel and stuff like that also uh, for Inaritu. But um, again, I, I do believe that he was part of Inaritu's camp coming from the commercials and all the, the work he was doing when he was younger. Uh, the one movie on his credit list that I have never seen that I, uh, or maybe I did see it and I just have forgotten about it. Did you ever see the three burials of Melchiatus Estrada? You know what's funny? I was looking at that, and I believe that was one of those movies that I saw and was like just one of those ultimate three-star experiences where you just kind of forget it the the moment the credits start rolling. I remember I really wanted to like it. Sure. But I don't don't believe it it hit very hard. Yeah. Written by the same guy, uh, but directed by Tommy Lee Jones. That was one that um, I have a strong notion I'm going to – Go watch it and 10 minutes in and being like, oh, yeah, I've seen this and turn it right off. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like, yeah, it's going to give me uh, the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford vibes where it's like, oh, yeah, this is going to be great. And 10 minutes in, you're like, nope, 
looks pretty, but turning yeah. it off. Oh, I'm so glad you said that. Yeah, that movie is so beautiful and so dry. Dude, I don't know. That's what like, it is. That's what's holding me back from checking out the blonde film. I'm like, dude, I'm sure it's great, and Anna de Armas is lovely, and I'm sure she gives a great performance. But like, it's the same guy that made that movie. Right, <laughs> right, dude. And I'm here to tell you, Killing Me Softly was the same thing. Yeah, yeah. I really tried hard to be a fan of that dude. Yeah, I even saw his uh, first. If I'm not mistaken, his first film was Chopper. Correct, Andrew Dominic. I believe you're right. Yeah, with I with did not Bana. see Chopper. You know, I saw I watched that yes. actually last year or so, and and again, it was fine. It, it was honestly the film itself was kind of whatever. Uh, Eric Bana was actually really good. I'm not normally a huge Eric Bana fan, to be completely honest. Yeah, but I thought he crushed it in that. It kind of had like. Because it was his first role, so it was kind of like watching Tom Hardy and Bronson, right? Like they still have sure. that rawness, and they haven't like become movie stars yet, right? Yeah. So, so, you, so you did like it, or you didn't? It was fine. It was fine, but it, it was okay. Yeah, but again, it's just like that. Like if all of the films that I've seen of, of yours are fine to bad, it's it's hard to get excited when you make a new one, you know. But right, I've heard it's right. really good, and I hope that I catch it soon. Maybe I'll do it for a five mini. I just wasn't sure if uh, you really could get into the chopper. Did the you chopper? Could you could you get in the chopper? <laughs> I mean, get in the chopper. <laughs> so don't ever, Jesus. no, don't reward me for this. <laughs> don't just fucking move on. <laughs> Jason, uh, get in the chopper. Uh, all right, I'm, I'm sorry. Is is Werner Herzog here all of a sudden? Eric Bonner uh, is, <laughs> oh God, don't. Ryan, I may or may not edit this out. Just fucking move on. <laughs> uh, oh, oh! If, if we're doing bad accents, I can give you a really bad Stallone doing Schwarzenegger. Uh, Ryan, uh, yeah. can get in the chopper? Huh? There you, yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. I'm a filmmaker. <laughs> That's funny. You're Which doing is funny that because I've been it's on two a, degrees removed from Matt Damon. Yeah, Matt Damon. <laughs> getting the trouble. Yeah. And I've been on a Rocky kick, so I've been watching all the Rocky movies and Creed <laughs> movies and shit. So, yeah. I'm all, give me that Stallone, baby. I love it. Fantastic. Now, for anybody that doesn't know, the guy who wrote this film, Guillermo Arriaga, he is actually a novelist before he was a screenwriter. Oh. That's how Inuritu came to know him and he actually just approached him and was like, Hey, you probably know me and my voice from my FM show, or you've seen my commercials and I would like to do a movie. And you seem like you're a very talented man. And I would like you to write a movie for me to make. And this guy, Ariago was down and he ended up writing a movie and turning in a screenplay for Amores Pedos. That was 215 pages. I saw that. Yeah. yeah. And, and he was like, Thanks for the four-hour movie, bro. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the thing to remember is that, again, this is Mexican cinema in the late 90s, you know, when it's being made before it was released in roughly 2000. And so, you know, getting an hour and a half movie funded is difficult enough, you know. So to come at him with like, hey, fund our three-hour film, uh, that's a tall order, you know, first-time filmmaker. But he did have this credit that he was able to parlay into getting it made. But they spent three years – Inuritu and Ariaga rewriting this script, getting it down to ultimately the shooting script, which was still, you know, 150 pages roughly or however long it was. One noteworthy aspect of the content behind it, obviously, you know, we've discussed and we'll continue to discuss a lot of the plot points within the film and what those say. But one of the aspects of screenwriting that I always really like is learning the subtext from the screenwriters. What didn't make it in the page? What did I miss? 
right, that's going on here that the writer and filmmaker are trying to tell me respectively, but that I didn't pick up on. And so one of the aspects that I would learn from my research is that both Inuritu and Ariaga wanted the subtext of missing fathers. And there's actually this, yeah, this entire theme where even though it's not directly addressed, this running concept of fathers not being present in lives and how these lives end up being negatively affected by that. So in in Octavio and Ramiro's case and Susanna, obviously none of them have a father or father figure. We only see their moms. And in the case of Daniel, he is a father who has actually abandoned his family to go live with this supermodel. And then we learn that El Chivo is exactly the same. He abandoned his family earlier for misplaced ideals to go fight for a guerrilla faction to change the political nature of the country. But either way, he still abandoned his family in pursuit of those goals. So each of the three stories is – dramatically affected by the lack of a father figure, either themselves being that figure or them being affected by the lack of that figure. Yep. As we get back to the film, we cut to a title card says El Chivo and Maru. Now, honestly, Ryan, I thought it was a bold decision to introduce a completely new character over 90 minutes into the film in the form of this yeah. like 70s porn stash cop that shows up. Kind of has a little bit of a <laughs> right. Powers Booth vibe. I feel like it's Kirkland brand Powers Booth. But yep. uh, <laughs> that's a great call. <laughs> and there's another guy. We don't really know who he is initially. Maybe he's a, a partner of his or something. It, it turns out that he is a client. He's uh, going to contract El Chivo to put a hit on his business partner. And this off-duty, corrupt sort of cop guy is taking him to go meet with El Chivo. And the cop is actually the one who caught El Chivo back in the day. So they obviously have a sort of a complicated relationship. Now, we also see that outside – so there's a quick scene where El Chivo is going to like a photo booth outside of a supermarket and he locks eyes with Ramiro who has been badly beaten from the beat up that Octavio had put on him. But we see that he is with Susanna and they have the baby. Uh, their eyes meet as they pass by the camera and we're also – seeing that El Chivo is tracking the business partner to put that hit on him when the central car crash occurs. Now, he runs to the scene, and before helping Octavio, he probably steals all of his money, but then he sees the dog. And so being a dog person, of course, he's got this entire sort of pack with him that he takes around everywhere. He goes and he saves the dog, pulls him out of the car, leaving the humans to you know fend for themselves, so to speak, which again is is very on point for his character. And this is where we do see all of the earlier scenes with Ramiro sort of coming to a head where he does end up holding up that bank and promptly gets shot by the Powers Booth lookalike's partner who is off duty, I believe. Now – The other thing, Ryan, that we haven't discussed, it's a huge, huge part of this film's aesthetic makeup is the editing, right? We don't always talk about editing. And if it is true that the best editing are the edits that you don't see, 
then by that calculus, this film is poorly edited <laughs> because you notice <laughs> all, right. all of the edits. But it is not. It is not. It's it, it's perfectly edited for what it is. But it very much plays against that sort of traditional mindset that says don't call attention to your edits. And that's part of this film's DNA and its legacy is sure. it did come out and it said, no, we're not playing by the same rules. You know, the look of our film is not going to look like hazy Mexico. We're going to try to make it look like Fight Club. And our characters are, you know, going to be telenovela characters, but we're going to elevate the film to high art. All of these things that it tries to do differently the editing is yet just one more example of that. And sure. the first thing that I will ask you, because I do know that for some people, the editing was a bit much. And and, and let me back up and say that I, I believe I've mentioned this on the show, but if you haven't heard me say this, I'm not a fan of the you know early 2000s Paul Greengrass style of, of let's course. do crazy shaky handheld and then also do you know 24 cuts a, a minute like – or, you know, 57 cuts. I mean, whatever that is, where it's just constantly jumping from thing to thing. Like, I, my brain needs time to process what's going on, dude. Like, <laughs> I need to be able to see. And furthermore, <laughs> like, if you have awesome production design, like, why why not give us time to soak it in visually, you know? They would put all this effort into making these grandiose scenes. And to me, that's the type of filmmaking that you do when you don't have money. And you kind of have to, you know... Uh, convince your audience that it's a stylistic decision and not a lack of funding. So I'm not sure. traditionally wired to appreciate that. And yet I did not feel that way throughout an ounce of this film. And I think it's because it, even though it's editing a lot, it still is discriminatory in the pacing of it. So there's a ton of editing through the entire film, but you'll still notice that that initial car crash sequence is edited much more rapidly than like the later dogfight scenes. So they, they do exercise – maybe restraint is not the right word, but the very deliberate decisions with regard to the editing. Sure. So how did that work for you? Was it a bit much or did you enjoy it? No, I enjoyed it. It kept me engaged. It matched the cinematography perfectly to me because the cinematography is frenetic and handheld and you're all over the place and you're yeah. bouncing around. So as long as you're going to be frenetic in what you're showing to me, uh, you might as well be frenetic in how you show it to me and how it's delivered in the whole thing. It was very consistent, if nothing else. Now, it might not be your cup of tea. Uh, it's not everybody's film, but um, but for me, it worked. Uh, I will say that uh, in an interview, I did see Inaritu talk about the fact that when he shot this, um, he shot this from so many different angles and the way that the story structure laid out in so much as you're seeing the El Chivo character in all three of these little novella stories and like all these characters are kind of uh, Julieta and all these people are all kind of like all over the place. Like they're even though each little piece of the triptych are, you know, telling that story, they're also teeing up another story or showing you a resolve from a previous story as well. So what Inaritu was saying is that um, the way he shot this, the way he had to kind of get so much coverage of each thing, knowing that, well, I'm going to use the, uh, you know, the, this scene from the dogfight in the first act and then show the resolution of that in the third act. I'm going to show this car scene for, in all three acts. I'm going to show, you know, so on and so forth. Uh, I'm going to show El Chivo in the background of the first act. And then he's going to rescue the dog from that same scene in the third act. So we had to shoot the crap out of this and yeah. get all this coverage, knowing 
that he's going to have to show this from different angles. And he said when he got in the editing room, he almost had a nervous breakdown because <laughs> uh, because he edited this himself along with yeah. his homie. They uh, sat down and did all this themselves. And he was like, dude, that he said that the possibilities were so endless that it was overwhelming. He's like, I yeah. could put this shot here. I could show it there. I could do a resolve there because there was no like real strict narrative structure where normally you would follow one character from point A to point B. You know, there's a three act structure. You have a MacGuffin. There's an antagonist and a protagonist, but this threw all those rules out and you're doing it times three to show this. uh, And you're, you're doing it for almost three hours. So it's like, holy crap. That's a lot of footage (laughs) to go through. And he shot it traditionally where he did a master and then went in for his close-ups and his two shots. Correct. Yeah. Every single scene you're like, I can, I can literally, Every single scene could be cut thousands of different ways, you know, put yeah. those together. And that's literally a hundred, hundreds of thousands of potential decisions over the course of two and a half hours. It's insane. And he said that, um, you know, he would have, he should have learned his lesson, but he did this to a, a reasonable degree in 21 grams and Babel as well. And it wasn't until he got to beautiful that he really started to get his shit together. And he's like, okay, fuck that. Like, I'm never doing that again. <laughs> and I'm just following one character through and like, we're going to tell more, you know, traditional stories and shoot it more traditionally and all of that. So that's when uh, he kind of, you know, he was probably using different editors and stuff by then too. So it wasn't his problem, but yeah. Anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And he also mentions too, that part of it is that he's glad that he did that to start his career because he was sort of young enough to pull it off, right? Like sure. when you're in your late 30s and, you know, you have, you know, to, to use an expression you like when you have to shove 10 pounds of shit in a five-pound bag, right? All the time. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, it helps to to be young and full of uh, piss and vinegar and, you know, just get out there and do all of that. He had a quote in an interview I saw to, to this exact point that I love, and I'm going to take this with me to my dying day. It's called, it says, uh, he, he was quoted as saying, innocence is stronger than experience. Yeah. So I love that. That's such a positive spin on uh, just being stupid enough to go try shit. Yeah. The na- <laughs> Ignorance is bliss, the, I guess. The naivete like the of thing, just missing. jumping into things, you know, whole ass right, and right. Then being like, oh, wow, looking back, I should have never done that, but I was too stupid to know otherwise. <laughs> and thank goodness yep. that I was, right? Because I was young enough to pull it off. Whereas, you know. Now he's in his 60s and he's like, I don't want to fucking do all that. That sounds like a ton of work. No, let's just let's right, just let's tell right. one story and tell it really well. And so that's what the interviewer uh, was was asking him um, What was, you know, has your career gotten easier? You know, as you've gotten older, you know, was it hard back then to do all this heavy lifting? And basically, you know, to paraphrase and use hyperbole is like, no, it was way easier back then because I was stupid. Yeah, so I didn't know any better. <laughs> I was just charging. You know, I was all cocksure and, you know, full of piss and vinegar and I was going to go shoot this shit. He's like, I would never go back to Mexico City and shoot this three hour epic like this all handheld and, you know, go into an editing room for eight months and piece all this shit together. Fuck that. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and it's funny, too, because one of the things that I find in most artists journeys is I believe that this is fairly common as an arc where when you start off in your career, it's all about how much can I pack in there? And I think part of that is you're inspired by the excitement. You know, you've got that youthful energy and vibrance and all of that. But I also think part of it is driven by insecurity, you know? And I think there's an okay. I think there's an element of, well, hey, I, there's a chance that I mess things up, that people don't like this. So if I can just put in a crap ton of everything, 
there's got to be something in there for people to like, right? Hey, maybe you don't like my characters, but I've got this great camera work and maybe you don't like this. So I've got that. And I feel like there's so much like, let me get as much in as possible in case people don't like what I'm doing over here. Then like they can look at this over here. And then once you develop your confidence, you're like, oh, no, you know what? We're going all in. We're just going to follow this one dude. You know, I know exactly where we're going to go with him. We're going to examine this and that and really get in deep. And, you know, there's nothing else that we can hang our hat on if this doesn't work. But I know how to make it work. I think you see that in people's careers. Sure. No, I agree with that. Yeah. Now, when we get back to the film, we've got the fact that the 70s cop – again, I, know, I didn't look this guy's name up, so we just call him 70s cop the entire time. He approaches El Chivo, says he's disappointed that the job hasn't been done, giving him two days to finish it. Now, we cut to Ramiro's funeral. Octavio still has this fantasy of leaving with Susanna, can't move on, and to sort of – get him to realize the extent that she's not going with him. She finally says that she's going to name her undead baby after Ramiro and not him. Now we cut to El Chivo. He comes home to find coffee is healed, but he's covered in blood. He's very worried until we get a very heartbreaking reveal showing that coffee has killed all of his dogs very violently. And, you know, he doesn't even know what he did, right? He was trained for this. So he's just sitting there all happy, looky, like, yeah, didn't I, didn't I do good? I did the thing. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Look what you I know? did. I did the thing that I normally get rewarded for. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's one of the things that this film does so well, you know, is it, 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 you know, it really leans into the idea that like no one's a villain in their own story, you know, whether it's Daniel cheating on his, his wife and abandoning his family or whether it's, you know, this dog or any of the things that Octavio is doing. Sure. It it really shows that they always believe that they're in the right or, you know, their their reasons for doing what they do are justified. Well, and that's funny you phrase it that way, too, because Inaritu was saying that this scene in particular exists as coffee uh, was following a parallel story arc as Chivo. And so this this scene particular exists to hold a mirror up to Chivo to show him what he had turned into as this trained killer that would always go back and say, look what I did. And though he was once a cute, cuddly dog that was loving and loyal, uh, he has turned into this monster and um, and would destroy families and so forth. And so this is his kind of turning point uh, in his story arc. And then, you know, we get into the, the third act of his little bit. Absolutely, yeah. And there's even a very on-the-nose visual metaphor that, you could even argue is a little clunky, but in such a masterful film, like we're not we're not even going to you know, that might be just be like the most nitpicky thing. But there's a scene where as this happens, El Chivo, who has previously said, if I'm meant to be blind, then let me see the world blurry. Right. He has a quick line. He yes. says that earlier. There's a scene where as this happens, he's laying in bed and he grabs his glasses and puts them on and quite literally sees the world clearly for the very first time. Right. Like yeah. that is such a, an on the nose. But I, I don't think it's clunky. I think it works. But again, if you wanted to argue, it's like, yeah, well, it's definitely very on the nose. But yep. again, you know, some amazing grace shit. Yeah. We're yeah. We're, we're reinforcing this theme of this awakening <laughs> through uh, of of rather El Chivo. And after that, he, you know, gathers up all the dogs, throws them in a pit, burns them. And he does find the business partner. 
He ends up kidnapping him, bringing him back home, tying him up. And then instead of killing him, he has an exceptionally acted scene where they have a conversation about who might have hired him. Eventually, the man figures out it's his half-brother. And when Chivo invites him back to finish paying him off for the job being done, he sort of insists that he come inside. And the man quickly realizes that the job hasn't been done. It's the reveal and El Chivo's basically like, I'm not even going to kill him at this point. If you want to kill him, here's the gun. And the guy's like, no, that's not what I hired you for. He's like, ah, well, this is happening, like it or not. So obviously the guy can't bring himself (laughs) to kill his half-brother. So El Chivo ends up tying him up, and they have the two of them are in kind of like a saw situation where they're both tied up in this dude's basement. And as he leaves them, he goes back upstairs and ends up shaving. (laughs) Now, I don't know if everybody else had this reaction, but in a film of of many, many shocking surprises, this dude shaving and how he looks without a beard might have been the biggest surprise of all. Uh, I know it's a tiny little thing, but I was like, wow, that dude looks very, very different without a a shaggy beard and a a fresh washcloth to the face. So what a difference a day makes. Yeah. <laughs> Fresh shower will do wonders for you, right? Literally Maybe a new man after that shower. Uh, this is Emilio <laughs> Echeverria. Apparently Correct, he's yes. a insane stage actor uh, in Mexico culture. So uh, I was not familiar with who this was because yeah, I'm an ignorant pud. But uh, yeah, uh, apparently this guy's a total badass and he was the most experienced uh, actor on set. So yeah, he was still, uh, Inaritu was delighted uh, to get him. He was the, the anchor to this whole bit. Yeah. You can definitely tell he brings what a uh, Kiefer Sutherland would describe as gravitas to the gravitas. screen, but that actually dovetails nicely into the last point, which we haven't touched on, which is the acting. And in a, again, a film with where everything is wonderful from the screenplay to the cinematography, to the editing, to the direction, Why not? Sure. Let's just throw some damn near perfect acting in there across the board while we're at it, right? You've got Gail Garcia Bernal's very first feature film, who, again, in keeping with the theme of this story, Inuritu had worked with previously, part of his uh, commercial days, and always remembered that he had these very penetrating eyes. And then when they were doing camera tests, I guess he was saying that because of – so Gail Garcia Bernal – naturally has these very striking eyes and then when they were recording them and then throwing in bleach bypass on top of it he said like his eyes almost looked purple on on screen and so they were just very very striking and he was also 18 at the time so he said there was this almost like juxtaposition of these you know very striking older eyes with this like super fresh-faced little pup in Garcia Bernal (laughs) and so he was really excited to get him the woman who played Valeria she, her name is Goya Toledo. She's a Spanish actress from what I understand, and she's a model as well. But yeah, this Emilio Echeverria guy was, you know, the sort of big one that they were able to get from stage, the storied actor that everybody really respected. And he gives arguably the greatest performance in a film that is full of great performances. I love the way he goes from sort of mostly silent protagonist to showing a sort of surprising cunning and depth of emotion and insight during his sequences and even the actor's dedication he actually the so the entire the character lives in a sort of squalid you know untended to apartment in the slums and it's dirty and there's new newspapers everywhere dogs everywhere the actor actually went and lived in that space for two to three weeks prior to filming 
so that he could be completely oh, wow. in character by the time they actually fired up the cameras. Damn. Yeah, so and then uh Vanessa Bosch and Marco Perez are Susanna and Ramiro respectively and they end up giving really good performances as well. Both of them would go on to be respected artists in Mexican cinema and the art world as a whole. Yeah, and uh Echevarria and Bernal both went right after this to go uh be in Cuaron's uh Y tu mama también, which came out the very following year. So they're all just hanging out and working with each other. They were in Babel and all of that. So good stuff. Absolutely. And in the final sequence of the film, we see El Chivo break back into his daughter's house. He has taken the clean cut photos that he took in the photo booth, replaced his older face with his current one and ends up leaving it inside the frame along with some money. And a very heartfelt message on the phone. And one of the things I think is so great about this sequence is it tees up a two and a half minute uninterrupted take, which in a film that has been averaging two to three edits a second, that is a very <laughs> long two and a half minutes when we finally get there. And yet it's so sure. effective. And the camera's not even moving either. It just lets him do all the heavy lifting, Echeverria that is. And it 100% works given everything that has been setting up that final moment. And in the very last sequence is him moving on with coffee, accepting that he is now partners with this deadly but ultimately loyal companion and sets about the broken and cracked earth to wander with his dog and see where life takes him as Amores Pedos comes to an end. Yeah, where was he going? Think, Do you think? I just – I think he was wandering. I think he's like, OK, you know what? We've we've gotten here, um, you know. I've been sedentary. I've been holding up, right? I've been limiting myself by living in squalor and never venturing out. And so I think this is just him leaving behind his safety and the security of his domicile Got and it. just going out into the world to see what awaits him. Okay. Yeah, I wasn't sure. And funny thing, it actually, that, that. that final scene was not included in the screenplay. And it still isn't to this oh. day. It was a last minute edition. Interesting. So it's just kind of left. I love it. You know, it leaves it a little bit ambiguous, but uh, yeah, I wasn't sure. Cause it does appear that he leaves most all his money to his daughter. So he's back, you know, just being broke with his dog, just wandering. But it's like, why did you have to shave for all that? I guess to take that photo and leave it on the family picture. Was that, you think his motivation for that? Well, no, I mean, he's going into the world as a new man. Like he's not the same El okay. Chivo he was before, right? He's undergone this transformation. And so now I think it's like, if you want to say he's returning to the world that he came from, but returning as a okay. new person and to see the life that awaits him. That's what I would argue. So he's not going to go be a killer anymore. You think he's going to go so, no. clean up his act? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe go it, find a job. Yep. Be respectable with his dog. Yeah. You know, maybe he'll retire to a small county in Arkansas and open up a diner and, you know, get to know there the locals go. and not talk about his past. Right. I want to see that himself. <laughs> <laughs> Amores yeah. Peros 2 El Chivo's Revenge <laughs> <laughs> But I was out of the game <laughs> And you brought me Becky Just turned it into like the most rote revenge thriller Completely missing in Eureka's intentions Yep Yeah <laughs> But yeah so before we move on to our final Analysis or Judgment or whatever you want to call it here. Just a reminder that uh, if you do enjoy the show, the best thing that you could do is rate, review, and subscribe. Really helps the algorithms in addition to telling all your friends about the program. Hopefully you guys will join us for future episodes. We've also got the short form five-minute reviews. If you're somebody who just is listening to these long forms and you haven't gone back and checked those out, 
There is a lot of good content for you. We've probably got damn near 50 to 60 of these things uh, at this point, and, and we're going to keep them going. So as we approach, you know, we didn't even mention, Ryan, I think we have three episodes left in season I know, three. sad times. So if you are somebody that has not gone back and checked out a lot of those five-minute reviews, remember that during the off-season. We'll still keep cranking them out. We'll have new content for you, but there is plenty of old content that you likely haven't checked out, and I would argue it's still pretty damn good, Ryan. I think it might be better. (laughs) (laughs) So let's go ahead. Let's wrap this up as we always do by doing our three adjectives and a formal rating. Ryan, I'll let you start with three adjectives. What you got? Uh, These are pretty cut and dry. I'm just going to throw these out there. Frenetic um, because of everything we talked about. Relentless because, man, yeah, it doesn't really give you a lot of time to breathe because of the edits and the frenetic cinematography and the dramatic subject matter. Uh, you're in it. This is a uh, relentless movie and raw um, because it's just like a raw nerve that it just keeps picking at. You know, this is uh this this is raw. Yeah, it, it is raw dog in it. I was going to say this is in <laughs> your movie, raw dog in cinema. I believe that's what your metaphor he was is intending to raw say. Raw dog in my emotions. Yeah, this was a heavy, <laughs> heavy raw dog. Film. My money, you raw dog my emotions. <laughs> that was, you know, and for being two hours and 37 minutes. I mean, Jesus, I should have been bored as hell or like. You know, come on. That's you know, I you're moving right along though. I think that uh, that the pacing is fantastic. It's it's great. Uh, this is just perfect. Uh, how about you, Jason? Absolutely. So first one would be hyperkinetic, pretty much frenetic, right? It falls in line. Don't need to explain that one. The second one I will say is volatile, and I believe that's something that could be missed when you walk away from this film because the execution is so flawless that it's almost difficult to take a step back and realize that like. This is such a volatile Molotov cocktail that if not handled in the precisely perfect way could just absolutely blow up and become a huge mess and just self-indulgent and all of that, you know? So it's like people don't realize like this is this is a live stick of dynamite where the the fuse has been lit and it's like seconds away, you know, and you've just got this expert bomb handler, you know, Mr. Hurt Locker, who's like, don't worry, fam, I got this, dude. And that leads me to my third adjective, hyphenated, which is impressively balanced. Again, for Inuritu to be juggling this many balls, right? I've mentioned before, I bring it up all the time, you know, the how I look at film as, you know, an RPG character creator, you know? And we've got to wisely invest our points. We can't just cheat code it and get all of the points and then max out all of our stats, right? If we're going to up our charisma, then we're not going to have points for dexterity. If we're going to up our strength, we're not going to have as many points for defense, right? <laughs> all this sort of stuff. This movie is like, nah, sure. fuck that, dude. We are, we are, we are, we are throwing our game genie on and we are putting everything at a 10. So you're talking about direction 10 screenplay 10 acting 10 production design 10 cinematography 10 editing 10 like this movie should not be able to do all of this and the fact that it does is just like it blows my mind like this is a this is a, a, a this is juggling while walking a high wire over a pit of alligators that are swimming in lava over uh over mount vesuvius right like just so insane and the fact that it's so perfectly executed i think that it would be easy to take it for granted just how much this film could go completely awry if not handled in the exact fashion with the exact love and care that it was across the board sure so it should not surprise anybody to hear that my formal star rating is 
Five stars out of five. Cannot think there of a reason is. to knock off even a quarter star here for Amores Pedos. And, of course, Ryan, you give the uh, the grade ratings to my star ratings. What is your grade rating for Amores Pedos? I'm giving this one an A+. I'm right in there. Wow. Cannot find Guys, a single flaw. hold on. Everybody needs to. This is insane. Mr. Ryan Siebold, Mr. I gave a D-plus to Dagon because I don't enjoy cinema, has just given A-plus <laughs> three times in a row to Amores <laughs> yeah. uh, Pedos. Old boy and elephant man, and I believe you gave a solid A to Beasts of the Southern Wild. I believe I did. Holy yeah. shit, man! You're getting soft on us, homie. I I know. Yeah, go back I mean, and tell yeah. uh, 19 year old Ryan that he's gonna he's gonna hate the schlocky cosmic horror from the guy who made Reanimator, and then is gonna go you know Gaga ape shit for the uh, art film in black and white. I'm turning it around. Yeah, <laughs> I'm a new man. I'm a new man. (laughs) (laughs) I love it, dude. I love it. It's so great. So to everyone listening, again, uh, thanks for joining us here. If you haven't seen this film, please do so. It's an absolute masterpiece. That's not a film that I throw around. It's not a term, rather, that I throw around lightly. It absolutely 100% deserves it couple different ways you can reach out to us. We would love to know what you thought about this film, what you thought about this episode, everything involved. You can go ahead and reach out to us. Let us know what you thought on the social medias at Esoterica Cinema, Twitter and Instagram. You can also reach out via email to esotericacinema at gmail.com. And then, of course, you can leave a message for us on the hotline. Man, I'm still waiting for you guys to come through on this hotline business. Haven't gotten something in a long time. Really want to play something from someone. So go ahead and call on your phone. Leave us a message that we can put on the air about what you thought about Amores Peros, about what you think about our reviews. Or, you know, just giving us a a slight uh, update on where you're at in your muffin enjoyment, right? We've talked about this before. We love to hear about muffin-related inquiries as well. That's right. I'm bringing them back for the rest of Season 3. And then in Season 4, we'll be going on to something else. Not sure what it is yet. Either way, that phone number, 818-483-6285. Call the Esoterica Cinema Hotline. Leave us a message. We'll get it on the air. Now, the other thing you can do, of course, is you can go visit our website, We have the last four episodes that are available for you to listen right there. And then we also have a separate link to a dedicated web player where you can listen to literally everything that we have made right there on your web browser if you prefer that to the streaming platforms. We should also have a trailer of our current film, though admittedly I am sometimes bad about keeping up to date on that. I do apologize. Trying to get better about that. But the other thing, and the whole reason you're going there, is our master list. That's right, our the master, master list. list. Hey, master list. Woo! <laughs> master list of all 200 films that we choose from at the end of every episode to see what our next week or two is going to look like. And this week is going to be no different. Should we go ahead and check it out, Ryan? Yes, I love it. Let's do it. Absolutely. So, uh, again, if you want to play along with us, go ahead and go to esotericacinema.com. You will see the list of the 200 films right there. You don't even have to download anything. You can just live view it right there on the main page. And we're going to go ahead and use our random.org true number generator to see what film we're going to watch. Hell yeah, buddy. Give me those sweet, sweet digits. So as we select generate one through 200, spin the wheel, spin the wheel, spin the wheel. The wheel lands on number 115. That's going to be on page number two. <laughs> yeah, we've been uh, hanging out 
right at the top for a while. I I I, I did not plan this. I promise. Uh, this is a great little sort of uh, organic callback oh, here. Number one fifteen. Oh, we are getting a respite from our serious artistic film. So if you've seen one fifteen, oh, you probably yes. have a smile on your face right now. What it is not is funny. Is one fourteen, which is a film called Razorback. That is actually a very heavy genre film about a killer boar that was made in Australia. I want to say Russell Mulcahy, the famous music director, directed that film, but don't quote me on that. I will not. We also did not get 116, (laughs) which again would have been a much more high art minded film, which is Redbeard, which is one of Kurosawa's films. I believe I want to say it was one of the later ones in his career, Uh, but that's another uh, Toshiro Mifune and Akira Kurosawa joint. No, we are doing number 115, the classic reanimator that I just brought Hell up. yeah, buddy. From our boy, our man, Stewie G. Let's hear that Stewie G. Ryan, I'm going to ask you for the description in, in, in Stewie G voice. I, anybody who doesn't hey. know, uh, hey, listen. he has brought listen. Stuart Gordon back many times. This is a recurring character at this point. It's only right that he reads I'm the description. From- Jason, I'm from <laughs> Chicago. If there's one thing we love about in Chicago, it's when you cut my head off and I'm still horny. I still want cunnilingus. I'm still going to eat that girl out. Here we go. Reanimator, loosely based on H.P. Lovecraft's classic tale. Herbert West is a young scientist who has a good head on his shoulders. Get it? And then yeah. another, <laughs> and another on the lab table in front of him. Uh, this is directed by Stuart Gordon, uh, released in 1985, yada, yada, yada. It's a schlocky horror. We made it for under a million bucks. Let's go back and talk about it next week. Jason, I cannot wait to watch this. <laughs> Man, it has been many years. I'm actually really interested to see how it holds up. For a long time, it was obviously my favorite Stuart Gordon film. Then Dagon overtook that for a little bit, and I think I ultimately wow. settled on From Beyond as my favorite. Okay. Um, I, so love those colored gels, right? Is that I, what know, that was? All I about? really do, man. Yeah. And honestly, like I, I've also, <laughs> I've checked out most of his work. I don't really love a lot of his other films. I didn't love dolls. Sure. I didn't love castle freak. They were just a little too, I don't know what the right word is. Like, I don't want to say they were too schlocky because his other films are very schlocky. Sure. And maybe it was just that they didn't have the budget and the creature effects. And that's kind of really what I love about these films. But either way, it's been a hot minute since I've seen Reanimator, and I'm very much looking Same. forward to going back and checking I it out. I cannot even tell you the last time I saw this. It was probably in my five movies, five days, five bucks days. Yeah, seriously. Maybe, uh, maybe one other time after that, uh, but it's a good one. Yeah, and and I don't know if anybody else can say this, Ryan. I, I don't know if this appeal, it applies to you, but I actually learned that Reanimator existed from American Beauty when they have that famous scene where Kevin Spacey is smoking out with Wes Bentley in the back. And they laugh over uh, this film. Oh, wow. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And so I was always like, mental note, got to check out Reanimator later. And then I did. And I was like, <laughs> oh, yes, this is definitely a movie you watch while high. This is insane. <laughs> You've been advised, folks. If you're out there. <laughs> so, yeah, that's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, really looking forward to that one. Oh, I cannot wait to see what the sketch is going to be for that. too. Oh, Wow. Definitely something involving self-fellatio. Is it my turn? Is it my turn for the sketch next week? I think it is. Is it? I don't recall. Because I, I, I think it? I do Old Boy. You did Elephantitis Man. And then uh, well, so you'll have Amores Peros. Yeah. Right? And then and you'll then be doing Reanimator. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, sweet. <laughs> 
So if you would like to watch Reanimator ahead of next week's episode, go ahead and do that. I'm sure it's very easy to find all over the place. In the meantime, let me thank you for joining us here at Esoterica Cinema. For Jason Peters and Ryan Siebold, thanks for joining us. Enjoy the movies.